Hey, what's this? What's what? Have you got soul? If so, the world's hardest working band is looking for you. In the early 1990s, the Irish were taking the world by storm. Please welcome Irish rockman. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sinead O'Connor. Sinead! Neil Jordan for the The economy wasn't great back home, but our creative exports were thriving. The Commitments was one of the big Irish movies at the time, and The Commitments play a part in this story. It was a time when many young, talented and creative Irish were making their home in New York. We were beginning to spread our wings culturally ourselves, that kind of new breed of immigrant. A tiny coffee shop with an Irish name became their focus. Whoever was around would come in and they would all play. Down in Manhattan's East Village, it sold cheap coffee by day, but by night, musicians, singers and poets made it somewhere special. A lot of nights you'd see Shane McGowan there, you know, or Sinead or Michael Stipe would be sitting there. It was called the Shin A Cafe, and it helped to nurture a unique talent with Irish roots who went on to sign a million-dollar record deal. That talent was Jeff Buckley. He was really an extraordinary musician. I mean, he was beyond everyone we knew. If you think his music was great, he was as nice a person as his music. His singing style has had an echo that's now the most popular singing style on, on, in the world. I'm lying in my bed, blanket is warm. Music journalist Steve Cummins was intrigued by Jeff's many Irish connections and the role his encounters with Ireland played in his career. It was still possible to do something. Do you know that kind of way? You could still do something. He's travelled to New York to meet Shane Doyle, who set up Shine Cafe with fellow Dubliner Carl Geary in 1989. Like, I opened up Shine selling just $2 cups of coffee. You, you couldn't even think of doing something like that now. This one guy came in to me and he goes, you know, I can help you with the, 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 the permits and everything. And he wanted $6,000, an expediter, right? I didn't even have a green card. So I didn't, what he's, I didn't have six grand. If I had six grand, I wouldn't be looking to open a place probably. You know what, I can park here. No standing. Shane Doyle is taking Steve to the East Village to where Shine used to be. 122 St. Mark's Place, to be precise. It's that place? Okay, yeah. yeah. For seven memorable years, Shine attracted a who's who of talent until it closed in 1996. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, this used to be Shine. It was, uh... It's now an Israeli deli called the Holy Land, a noisy deli full of noisy fridges. Back here was, was like the counter top with the cappuccino machine and stuff. And over against that wall was where everybody performed. The whole thing was against all odds. I didn't know the first thing about um, restaurants or coffee shops or anything. I had a, ca a cappuccino machine and a place where people could hang out. The walls were pink. There was a, a, a little stand-up piano here. It's quite a small space, isn't it? Ridiculously small. The list of people who came to Chine is long and illustrious. Very unfaithful. Uh, Sinead, the Hothouse Flares. Jeff, of course, Jeff Buckley. Or Carol King came one time, played the piano. You could walk in here and you'd see Paul Simon or Iggy Pop or anybody could come by here. 
It was a very different atmosphere. It's hard to put it in context. But this tiny address is remembered by many people today for one reason only. Jeff Barkley, Shine. So uh, I know all the story. 20 years after, even more, people are still stepping in to ask for Jeff Barkley and taking a picture. <laughs> all right, guys, bye. Singer-songwriter Jeff Buckley grew up in Southern California with his mother. His father, Tim Buckley, was a successful folk singer who walked out on them before Jeff was born. He split before I was born. That's Jeff Buckley from a US radio interview. He didn't really keep contact with me and my mom, except for one time. And I was asleep at the time, I was probably two. You know, it was like he went off for, he decided not to be a father. So, just me and my mom. And I saw him once for a week, and then uh, that was two months before he crashed on heroin. And in between then, there was no contact. I guess I missed it, you know, and it always bugged me. Despite never knowing his father, when Jeff was asked to take part in a show paying tribute to Tim Buckley, he agreed. The show took place in New York in 1991. There was a guy called Hal Wilner who'd done this show about Tim Buckley, Jeff's dad. That's musician Mark Geary. People got up and, and sang uh, Tim Buckley songs or whatever. And, uh, and Jeff had been asked to, to come and do it. It was the first time that fans of Tim Buckley would hear Jeff sing. So the irony was that, you know, here was this father who had left, but also had kind of left Jeff with this, this, this voice that was all but Tim Buckley. Jeff did not make it down to Chennai on that visit. He'd soon return to New York, where he'd forge strong Irish connections. Today, the East Village is a neighbourhood filled with trendy bars and restaurants. As Shane Doyle explains, it wasn't like this in the early 90s. You could live here very cheap, and there was a lot of squats around the place, but 20 of these buildings were abandoned. So it was, it was very much like that. Right across from me was uh, all the Rastas. And uh, they had their own thing, they sell them pot, and there was a couple of shootouts there that I saw. And in the East Village, it was certainly uh, a pretty crazy kind of place at the time. That singer, Mark Geary, he was a regular at Chennai. It was a place called Stingy Lulu's, across the street from Chennai. Their hook, or their angle, was that all of the, the waiters or waitresses were transvestite. The young, creative Irish gravitated here because of cheap rents. It was also cheap rent that gave Shane Doyle an opportunity to open a cafe. I wanted to use an Irish name. I said, I don't know how I actually finished with Chennai, but I wanted to use a name like that. The sign they had done, this metal thing, probably Carl and Shane's only Irish word that they even knew um, uh, on the wall. The plan was to just let it be whatever it was going to be um, and people to do whatever it was they wanted to do. The Irish that were coming at that point, I guess they were a bit better educated and there was a lot of them had, had all kinds of artistic talents. They didn't want to hide out in the building sites and work in the bars. They really wanted to be able to do their own thing. Another regular at Chennai was Cattell Koenig. I think there definitely was a buzz. Uh, I mean, obviously... You two were a massively successful band in the US uh, and Sinead O'Connor was 
you know, there were there was a lot. Yeah, there was a buzz about Ireland. There were all these people with Morrison visas flooding <laughs> the East Village. You know, the Irish were everywhere. Initially, business was slow, but soon Shinay began to attract the East Village's artists, writers, and musicians. They included songwriter Tom Clark. I got up and did a couple songs, and Shane Doyle came up to me and he asked me if I'd do a regular gig there. I started doing Monday nights, and I would bring in this little battery-powered amplifier called a mouse amp that people would use to busk on the street with, and that became the Shanae PA system, which is really sad. And, uh, you know, it was that for a while. So if you had a gig at Shanae, you had to come in during the day and plug in that amplifier and charge it and hope that it was charged up by nighttime for your gig. Shane's whole thing was like, here's this stage, here it is, and, and you can do whatever it is you want. I don't care if you were standing on your head in clown makeup or whatever, he didn't care, just as long as someone came in to watch you. The creative freedom at Shinay would become important to Jeff, who was now back in California and looking to return to New York. And just like in the movies... The world's hardest working band is looking for you. Jeff saw an ad to join Dublin's hardest working band. He was about to join the commitments. And future Oscar-winning songwriter Glenn Hansard. I first met Jeff uh, on a trip with the commitments... Uh, we were we were brought to we were brought to America on a promo trip, and part of the promo trip, the Commitments band would get together and play. If you remember in the film, Andrew Strong, the lead singer, at the end of the film, he has his own band and makes his own album. So as part of the gag on the night, Andrew comes back on stage with his new band. But the new band was Carla Azar on drums, Jeff Buckley on guitar, and I can't remember the bass player's name. We started in L.A. and we, by the time we got to Chicago, myself and Jeff were sitting down and working stuff out. And, you know, Jeff was kind of fixing bits of guitar strings that were breaking during the set, watching, watching the amp. And then when he was on, I'd be watching the amp for him. So we were kind of, you know, helping each other out. And then when we got to New York, Shane called. By now, Shane Doyle had a reputation for getting any Irish performers in town down to Shanae. Shane, who would never miss a beat, with that stuff, knew that the commitments were in town and knew that it was, uh, you know, something of a sensation uh, for, uh, as a film and, and whatever, and was getting a lot of press. For me and Jeff, it was super exciting because, you know, we were huge Dylan fans and here's an offer to play a coffee house in the village. So we, uh, we jumped in a cab and went down. And I remember we arrived and it was just this tiny little place and it just seemed like right out of a film, right out of a kind of your imagination of what it must have been like for Dylan when he was playing Café Wa or... You know, one of those places to gaslight. And then we went in. Sat up and played a few songs. And then Jeff jumped up um, with me. And we, we, we jammed a couple, of, a couple of tunes and it was unbelievable. Young lovers do. And we sat on our own star and dreamed of the way that we were And the way that we wanted to I hadn't really heard Jeff sing at that point. He was singing differently to anyone I knew. It was almost like he sang like a cat was playing with a ball of wool. You know, he sang with such an ease that he'd play with notes and he'd play with phrasing. Jeff would do it in such a way that he'd bend it and twist it and just before it lost the rhythm would catch you back. And he was a master immediately with this style of singing. 
Jeff's voice would often be compared to his father's, but Jeff insisted it came from further back, through a long line of Buckleys that had emigrated from County Cork. It's not his voice, and it's not my voice. It's the voice that's been passed down through every man in the family. His father, I found out, sang. He had a beautiful voice. It's just an Irish thing. You wouldn't understand. (laughs) Within a few months, Jeff would become a regular at Shinne. Jeff fell in love with the place. From that moment, uh, had decided that he was going to move to New York. At around this time, Tom Clark was playing Monday nights at Shinne. I was going to go to Ireland for a couple months. You know, they had a, a couple of uh, months of Mondays and and uh, and they left and they were left open and so Shane said, come on in. I can still see him. He, he just kind of strolled into the place. He was bringing his guitar, almost dragging it, and he had a tape wrapped up with some paper and he gave it to me. And uh, I don't know how it happened. I booked him very quickly. I don't know how... I don't know whether it was based on what I heard or what. So Jeff ended up having the Monday night. Jeff was enthusiastic about his regular gig in Shinne. It's on St. Mark's Place, 122 St. Mark's. The owners are a couple of um, great Irish gentlemen. One's name is Shane, and he's very tall. And then there's Carl, who's very pretty. He's very, you know... All the girls just go crazy for Carl. <laughs> and there's no cover and uh, Ever. Ever. You just play for tips, right? There's a glass jar and stuff. These Shinne shows put him on the radar of a young Dubliner named Michael Murphy. When I encountered Jeff, I, I was an A&R person, artist and repertoire, basically a talent scout for a record label. This was just the time where he began playing Shinne. And he was the guy that you would go and see any time that you were free. A lot of the time, if I remember correctly, um, those Monday nights, there might be maybe 10 people. That's Mark Geary. So it was an incredible thing to kind of learn to just be, to try be as good as you could possibly be in front of three people. Michael Murphy was at many of those shows. Every night that Jeff was playing, we went down. And there were times when it was, the audience was five or six people. So you're seeing someone very, very early in in their career. They're not playing to an audience because there is no audience. So you're really seeing quite a a naked form of self-expression. Michael worked with a record label and wanted to sign Jeff. He had the idea of bringing him to Dublin. Jeff was going to the Trinity Bowl. It was his first time ever performing outside the US. I said to Jeff, you know, at at, at Sinead, my old school in Dublin is 400 years old and they're having a big dance. Would you like to play there? And he said, yeah, I'd lo- like if that'd be amazing if you can if you can swing it. On that first trip to Dublin in May 1992, Jeff stayed in Michael's family home. Steve, I'm assuming that's you. Michael, how are you doing? Very nice, nice to meet you. you. Pleasure. Thanks for coming. Hello, this is my dad. Steve Cummins is paying the Murphys Hello. a visit in Dean's Grange. Steve, who's doing well, a documentary on, on poor Jeff. This is the table that Jeff sat at <laughs> and serenaded Mum, which is a story that's only come out recently. Yeah. He said his name, but it meant nothing to me. So he started to play. And in the course, I asked him, how did he get into the music? And he said his father. 
I think it said a lot about Jeff that instead of wanting to go out and socialise and party that, you know, in his limited time in Ireland before playing at, at the Trinity Ball, that was that he said, no, like, is it okay if I don't go for dinner, you know, with you and, you know, the, the music business people and, you know, can I stay with your parents? So kind of stayed and I think watched the Late Late Show with you. Yes, and this neighbour came up um, down the road, she used to come up to us, Bridget Macklin. I remember she had a packet of biscuits. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and he loved the biscuits. You made the tea. Did I? You yeah. made the tea and brought it in. Yeah. And uh, he chatted. But, you know, she'd come in and had brought up the biscuits for the Late Late Show, and Jeff had, had tucked in. Jeff was not spending time with my parents thinking, this will be good for my career, or they can introduce me to, to Bono. Michael and his parents have fond memories of Jeff, and nearly 25 years on, the photographs are out. Oh, that's Do him. You yeah. that? That's him. That had, that we've had that painted since. <laughs> there, there's another one of us at the, at the hall door. The way I looked at him, just he was a boy, you know, like ah, just young at that time. And Very nice guy. We were devastated when he tragically died. So this was the bedroom that Jeff spent. You know, he, he arrived on the Thursday on the early flight. Jeff was standing at Dublin Airport in his Sex Pistols T-shirt and a red and white check jacket, like a almost like a vaudeville comedian would wear. And he had a ghetto blaster with him that he had brought, you know, for two and a half days in Dublin. But to me, that was saying... I love music so much that I don't want to go anywhere without music. Can you remember what he might have played that night? Can I remember what Jeff played the night of the Trinity Ball? Absolutely not. I filmed it though. Yeah? Yeah. Wow. Have you watched it? I believe it's upstairs. I would imagine it's the first Jeff Buckley show that that was filmed. So here, tucked away in the wardrobe, a Scotch video cassette, 180 minutes. If you want to sit yeah, where, 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 yeah. where Jeff sat, ironically enough, um, we'll give it a go. I mean, and, and see if if it's intact. I mean, it certainly looks like it. It is the tape. And here we are walking, there's Jeff walking past the Bank of Ireland, going to the Trinity Ball. This is. So there's an ultra young Jeff walking, just playing, having fun, like walking into the camera. And this is Jeff walking on stage. Probably about a thousand people. They're in dinner jackets. This is footage that I haven't seen in 10 years that I don't think anyone has seen. And this is his first gig outside of Manhattan. So 
you know, with the benefit of hindsight, this must have been a good moment as a performer because he's been playing in Chennai. He's been playing, you know, to smaller groups of people and he comes over to Ireland where he's never been and, you know, there's just 1,500, maybe 2,000 people who are listening to him and paying attention to some extent. But they genuinely don't really know who he is because at this stage he's complete unknown. I haven't watched this in a long time and I, I, it had been put away for a reason because I, I found it quite difficult to revisit Jeff's work um, after, after he passed. And just watching it now, I think, this is a phenomenal performance by a complete unknown, by a young guy. Jeff returned to New York after the 1992 Trinity Bowl with a new focus. Jeff Buckley is performing this Thursday night at Cheney in uh, on St. Mark's Place in Lower Manhattan. That Dublin audience was the largest he had ever played to. Jeff wanted to improve as a performer and develop his style. He was convinced Cheney was the place to do this. The thing that what I wanted to do was get to a place where it was impossibly intimate. Everything was like really up close. And Cheney's like that. I mean, you know, you're right in front of the people. And some people come there to, to talk to each other, you know, and some of them don't come to listen. But, uh, and, and you know, there's, sometimes there's a lot of noise, and sometimes people can't really come to listen. And it's good to deal with, if you can't move people, it's just a strength I wanted to, to really get into as a natural force in, in my playing, in my musicking, whatever, my singing, that I wanted to, if I couldn't move people close up, then there wasn't much point in going any farther. The people around him, including Shane Doyle, could see his progression. He was kind of experimenting with the music. You could see that, you know, he'd be reaching for notes and he mightn't quite make them, but it didn't matter to him. A coffee machine that needs... Whoa, wrong note there. Let me try it again. Miles used to do live. Chenet was absolutely his workshop and as a laboratory where he could experiment, he could see what worked. He could see if what felt right for him worked for an audience. He was already playing regularly there when I started, yeah. That's Ketel Koenig, who joined Jeff on the list of regulars at Chennai. He kind of took me under his wing a bit, you know, he was very kind. She saw many of those long, experimental shows. There were times when you didn't want to get stuck in a Jeff Buckley gig at Chennai's because you didn't necessarily want to be there for two or three hours. I mean, it seems bad now that we'd be trying to get out of it, you know. To Cattell, Chine was more than just a music venue. Yeah, there was definitely a welcoming atmosphere there. And that was down to the people who worked there, you know, Shane and Carl. We, we sort of all became friends, so... And then there was the music, of course, you know, so... But I think beyond music, it was a community centre, essentially. Tom Clark remembers the staff had a particular favourite in Jeff. The people that worked there loved him. He was a very lovable guy, and he had that sort of, you know, little orphan boy feel to him where you just wanted to take care of him. And believe me, he played it up in a good way. 
and he got taken care of. And like they always say that he loved to go in and wash the dishes and he loved to do all that stuff at Shanae because it made him feel like home, you know. Shanae was now one of the coolest hangout spots in New York City. We had Bono and the Edge come by one night. Uh, the, the, this limousine pulled up outside and uh, the driver comes in and he wants to know if I was here and he goes, I, I got Bono outside, so I said, bring him in. So he comes in and he's with little Stephen on the edge and they're hanging out. Bono's wasn't the only limo on St Mark's Place. Gradually he became known and it was, you know, a lot of people wanted to see him. Jeff's performances began to attract the big record labels. Record executives from big companies in their office would be calling up to book a table. I'd be like, sure, yeah, no problem. But you couldn't book a table in this place, you know. And they all wanted to come and see him, and they did. There'd be limousines parked the whole length of the road. I'd say Jeff would cringe if he saw a limo coming, but yeah, I know it did happen. After the Trinity Bowl, Michael Murphy, who worked for Imago Records, one of those big record labels, was having difficulty convincing his boss to sign Jeff. In terms of commercial potential, the jury was absolutely still out. And our boss, who had signed Huey Lewis in the news, Pat Benatar, he'd managed Jethro Tull, he discovered Blondie. And he was completely unconvinced, despite us being so passionate. Michael lost out to a rival at Sony Columbia Records. Steve Berkowitz signed Jeff to a million-dollar record deal in October 1992. I, th- I mean, I thought that, you know, Jeff would make 25 records, and I think that... Uh that Columbia and Sony thought that it kind of went Dylan, Springsteen, Buckley. Berkowitz was so convinced of Jeff's talents that Sony Columbia signed him without hearing a proper demo tape. They had only ever seen him play in Chennai. I want to thank you for coming out and helping me get through my Cafe Days selection. Jeff's first release for Sony was recorded in familiar surroundings, as Glenn Hansard remembers. I remember Steve Berkowitz coming down to Chennai and then them setting up the live at Chennai as a kind of a how do we how do we introduce this man to the world? How do we introduce this voice, this unique? And Jeff's thing was like Chennai. And like I said to Jeff, because they wanted to take the place over, I said, how, how much should I look for this? And he goes, ask whatever you want. It's Sony Records. <laughs> The cafe was so small, the recording desk had to be located in another building. I remember they ran uh, the recording from the bar down the street with the cables into Sinead. He was desperate to try capture this thing, this magic. No. The Live of record is the real special one to me. No, 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 no. That record's about as close to the real Jeff Buckley, because there's no sheen on it. There's no, there is no polish and no, that's what you got. You know, that was him. Nobody feels any pain tonight. Jeff returned to Dublin as a major label artist. Steve is with Dave Allen, who booked him to play Whelan's in March 1994, Jeff's second gig in Ireland. This would have been 
Pretty much the original stage that Jeff would have played on. The first gig he did would have been a Monday in March in 94. His Sinead EP had just come out and it was just him on an electric guitar, but it was an amazing gig. Uh, there would have been about 140, 150 people at that. That audience was mostly made up of fans of Jeff's father, Tim Buckley. I think a lot of them had been here because of the Tim Buckley connection as well, you know. And um, we're curious to see what the what Jeff's lungs were like compared to his dad's. And they were pleasantly surprised. Jeff was a little bit nervous. He walked on stage and he did something that was just extraordinary. He had a pint of Guinness in one hand and his guitar. And he just put the pint to his mouth and he took a sup, he took a long draught, but then he kept going and kept going and he polished the whole pint in one gulp and the audience immediately loved him. Everyone started cheering and clapping. They went completely silent and he started playing Mojo Pin. It's a song about a dream. Super quiet on the guitar, super quiet. The audience just went and it was pin drop silent and he had an incredible gig. It was unusual to see people react as they did, you know, straight after the gig. They were all trying to get up and see him in the, in the dressing room upstairs. I remember the power of his impact on that Dublin gig. And I'd seen him play in New York in smaller places. And it was like he had been, he'd obviously been playing a lot. He was really good to begin with. But then he went off and he honed his craft. And by the time he came and played in Dublin, he was just outstanding. He was really a lot better than he needed to be. Jeff returned to New York to put the finishing touches to his debut album, Grace. As well as his own songs, it would contain many of the cover versions he had played in Shin A. I think he was a little unsure whether he should put covers on it, but the covers were so great. He could sing anyone's song, and generally speaking, do it better. Case in point, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord but you don't really care for music, do you? When I heard Jeff sing it, it was like, oh my God, that just brought that song to a whole new place. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift it was fitting that Jeff was back in Dublin for his second gig in Whelan's on a very special day. And it was actually the day that Grace was released, the 23rd of August. So it was, so he played here and he had the full band. And uh, word got out at this stage, so it was actually a sold-out show. It was also a memorable gig for Cattell Koenig. I happened to be back in Dublin then, so he played Whelan's and um, I went into the... Um, soundcheck they were doing there and they were playing my song Paris and the soundcheck him and the band I, I said to him oh do you want the lyrics because he didn't seem to know the lyrics I said I'd write them out for you if you like and he said oh yeah write me out the lyrics and come up and sing it you know so so we did during the encore we we did it um, and I couldn't get to the stage because it was so packed so to walk, walk across the tables and you know definitely a, a good moment you know to sing that song with him it's definitely one of the highlights of, I mean, we're here a while, I think we're here 26, 27 years now. And we've had a lot of really good people through, but Jeff's gigs are definitely up there. 
they, they, they definitely got legendary status at this stage. After the gig, they were going to the north, they were going to Belfast for the next night. So I don't, they didn't stay, they got on their bus. Jeff toured constantly for the next two years. God, I don't know anyone who toured as much. When Jeff was touring on Grace, it was ridiculous how much he was doing. It was, you know, that was back in the days when record companies would just send you on the road and you'd be out there for three years. He would play one final gig in Ireland in January 1995. The last time he played in Dublin, which was in the Tivoli Theatre, he was just so exhausted and he looked terrible. I mean, he was drawn. I mean, he looked, you know, beautiful man, but just was really tired. And that was the last time I saw him. It's a song about... It's an angry song. Life's too short. Grace was not a commercial hit, and Jeff was under pressure from his record label, as Tom Clark explains. His record did not sell. I mean, if you look at the numbers... Get the record company breathing down your back and you have to keep asking them for money. His talent meant that he became, you know, he was on his way to success and he did really well. But the personality that produced that talent actually is the worst kind of personality you can possibly have to be in that situation, you know. You're just overwhelmed, you know. It's like when, when you're, like, surrounded with people who want a piece of you, who want sort of something from you. And I think he did struggle with that increasingly. He thought his career was over. Last time I talked to him, you know, you know, he had huge writer's block that lasted for years. He was, he got darker. And I think it began to wear on him. And I think he was very unsure about what he wanted his future to be. By 1996, Shinay Cafe was also in difficulty and shut its doors for the last time. It was the end of a special place for the Irish in New York. It finished because the whole neighbourhood changed, you know. And in the very building that it was in, um, the rents went to 1000 and 1200 Steve and Shane Doyle are heading to Arlene's Grocery, where Shane opened a new venue after Shanae closed down. Once you go below house to Lower East Side. Uh, this is Arlene Grocery. It's the original sign that was there when we took over the place. It was here, in February of 1997, that Jeff Buckley played his last gig in New York. It's before he went to Memphis. Yeah. Yeah, it's the last time anybody in New York saw him. Jeff headed to Memphis to record a second album. After months of work, he wasn't happy with the recordings, as he explained in a phone call to Tom Clark. And, you know, when he called me from Memphis and, you know, they were bringing in his record producer from Grace again, he didn't want to do that. He felt like he was be doing the same thing over again, and he was really upset, you know, and he wasn't in a good way. He was just artistically upset, you know. I talked to him probably 40, 45 minutes that night. On May 29th, 1997, Jeff had turned a corner in the creative process. His band had just arrived in Memphis and were being picked up from the airport when Jeff went down to the banks of the Mississippi. I got a call one day from Shane Doyle saying, did you hear, you know, did you hear about Jeff? Just like he had done in Dublin, Jeff had brought his ghetto blaster. He went into the river fully dressed and with his boots on and was singing along to Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. A passing tugboat caused a wave big enough to pull Jeff under. And they said, no, he's missing, he's gone. And he said it like that, he's gone. We didn't hear that he was dead straight away. We heard he was missing under 
what looked like bad circumstances, you know. Because he was missing for, I think, three days before they found him. Everyone was baffled. No one knew what to make of it. There was talk of suicide. There was talk of drug overdose. There was talk of... And then, and then there was just talk of he just went into the river and slipped away. It was just a dumb mistake, a really dumb mistake. You, you don't jump in that part of the Mississippi in Memphis and live. Six days after Jeff went into the Mississippi, his body washed up on a stretch of the river near Beale Street, the home of blues music. As news of Jeff's death reached New York, people marked his passing at a particular address in the East Village, as Mark Geary remembers. I remember walking down St Mark's, uh, where Sinead used to be, and there were all these candles and uh, flowers. Uh, and people were there, a trickle of people, and people were just kind of laying, laying uh, kind of wreaths and, and, and flowers and stuff. You know, when I think about, you know, Jeff passing and Sinead closing, I seem to link the two, and I'm recognising, for me, how momentous it was for me to kind of leave Ireland and, and get on a plane to show up, find this place, find all these people, and within a really, really short space of time, the whole thing has flowered, blossomed and died. <laughs> you know, the whole thing is wrapped up and done, confined to history in five years. In August 1997, many of Jeff's friends from Shinne attended a memorial in New York, including Ketel Koenig. Not sure what there is to say about the memorial. It was, you know, full of devastated people. And it's been a while since I played this song. And I sang um, Calling You, which is a song I used to sing. There's a line in it about a little cafe. A coffee machine that needs some fixing. I suppose it made me think of Sinead, you know. In a little cafe just round. Yeah, it's a very moving song, particularly given that um, he wasn't with us anymore. This November 17th, Jeff Buckley would have been 50 if he was still alive today. 50 this year. Jesus. Jeff, I think, would have gone on to be a truly great artist. Jeff is still remembered fondly by his Irish friends and to this day, the Murphy family that he stayed with in Dublin have his name read out at Mass. I always put him down every year that he's prayed for every first Friday in Foxhawk here. Jeff played the song A Satisfied Mind during that Trinity Ball concert in 1992. Five years later, he was dead. It was also the final song played at his memorial service. When my life is over And my time has run out My friends and my loved ones I will leave there's no
satisfied mind.